Well, good evening. Good to see all of you. And we had um, several of you who were here for the first time. Um, who's been here for more than three years? We have one person there, another person. Anybody saw you there? Anybody more? You've been here for more than three years. Anybody been coming around here more than five years? Well, it's great to have some folks here. I know six or seven of you raised your hand. This was your first time you were here earlier. And um, yeah, there's a lot of places that we could be tonight. I mean, the world needs a lot of people to do a lot of good things and to take up a lot of action. And we're here. And when we were sitting at the very beginning, you know, I said, just consider all those responsibilities that you had today and consider that right now your only responsibility is to sit and to breathe. That's it. And in some ways that can seem indulgent or selfish. I mean, how many different things could we be doing tonight that we're sitting in a room and, and breathing? Sitting and breathing. Paying attention to our stuff, our things that come up into our mind. Why do we do that? Why do they even build monasteries or have temples? I mean, is that just a place for narcissistic people to go and gaze at their belly button? I mean, what is the, 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 the essence of having a, a, a facility and a context like that for human beings? That's what I want to talk about tonight. It's why are we here? Why do we do this? What's the value of having a meditation practice? Is it just so that I can calm myself down and be more likable during meetings? So I can be a nicer dude to the people I'm in relationship with? So that my family can tolerate me better at holidays? I mean, what's the, what's the reason that I would want to meditate? The last couple of weeks I've been actually in this monastery under a good deal of stress. I had a um, seven-year plan that I needed to produce, and I needed to, to then lead people through it all last Saturday. So for the last several weeks, if not the last four months, but certainly the last two or three weeks, I was working on this plan, this seven-year plan, um, and feeling a good deal of stress, sometimes waking up in the middle of the night thinking about different things I forgot, um, sometimes eating a shorter lunch and trying to get back to work. I'm sure you all can relate to this. Things that you go through at school, things you go through in your job. And um, there just so happened to be this random thing last Thursday. And I don't even know what, what it was about. It's, it's so random, it just seems weird. But there's a, 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 um, a group here in San Francisco that um, brings rescue dogs to different places. And for whatever reason, they brought a rescue dog here. Now, we can't have dogs in the building because of allergies and different things like that, so we, I know we aren't going to adopt a dog. But out in the courtyard over here, the next, door, next building from here is where my office is. I'm the CFO and I manage the accounting team and we've got a building next door and they've got a nice little courtyard. So these people came from the, this rescue association and they brought this dog, this cute dog named Noodle. And, <laughs> and, and, and Noodle is like 14, 15 years old. It's a pretty old dog. Um, and, but it's incredibly cute and I can see why they would bring the dog to places. 
And I was coming back from my hurried lunch, and I really wanted to go and um, go up the steps and get doing all the important stuff that I need to do, you know. And um, there were several people in the courtyard that were there holding Noodle and talking to the person who brought Noodle. And um, they said, oh, Michael, come over here. And I'm just like, no, no. I'm going to have to be nice guy. Like, do some stuff with a dog for a while. Okay. I've got important things to do, you know. And I love animals. Um, so I don't know if anyone noticed, but I, you know, tried to put on my happy face. And I went over there, and um, I got to talking with the people about this dog. And they were just like, why don't you hold it, you know. So then they put Noodle on my lap, you know. So I'm sitting there and holding Noodle, you know. And this dog is just so cute. It's got these huge ears, and it's got these deep, dark brown eyes. And um, it's older, so it's, you know, just a, a little bit more kind of feeble. You know, it'll, like, lick your wrist, but do it kind of slowly, you know. And, um, and, and I just kind of melted. I, I just, I felt like I was in a different universe. I even felt like crying. It was weird. And, like, all the stress and pressure that I had been feeling just started to evaporate somehow. It was going somewhere else. And on Thursday afternoon, um, I usually lead the team meeting. And usually we're all kind of like, you know, how are we going to get time to have the meeting and all that sort of thing. Um, but um, they even took some pictures of us holding the dog, like we'll put it in the newsletter or whatever. And I didn't want to quit holding the dog. And it was just a very physical lesson. And, I, and all the tension that was in my body just started to kind of integrate into other ways, into other parts, into other contexts. It just wasn't there. And um, I went upstairs to do the team meeting, and I felt so relaxed. And it went really well. And I think everyone could kind of sense that you know, Michael wasn't so stressed anymore, you know? And there was a connection that we had, and it was a really good meeting. And we talked about taking care of the donors, Donna, how we support this place is through people's donations. Um, Young Urban Zen has a place out front um, where you can donate with kind of QR code. And there's also a donation box. Um, and we're responsible for this in the accounting department. We're responsible for, uh, if we do our job well, then we take care of these donations in a very responsible way. And we were really able to connect on that as a group. And it felt really good. And then later on in the evening, um, and I'm someone who really likes to work out and use my, my watch for body metrics. And for whatever reason that evening, I came across a metric that I had never seen before on my watch. And maybe some of you know about this metric, but it's the HRV. And it's the um, heart rate variability. And it's in there, and it's a little tiny gap. So I started reading about what's an HRV. And they said, you can look at your timeline and you can see when you're more stressed, because it's actually connected to the parasympathetic system. And whenever you are like lacking sleep and you're like really stressed out, your HRV is a lower. It's like, you know, 15, 16, you know, milliseconds between beats. And I didn't know anything about this. I just happened to look it up. And I thought, 
wow, well, I'm going to check and see what happened to my HRV during this last day because, you know, I had a fairly different effect. And, like, it was, it started off the morning, like, at 30, and then it plummeted down to, like, 15, and then it was hovering, like, around 12 to 15, you know, all day. And then somewhere right after lunch, it goes up to 46. And I was like, wow. And then it stayed at 46 for a few hours before it plummeted back down again. And I was connecting to something. And the people around me, like dropping a pebble in a pond, the ripple effect went out. Somehow I was taking care of me in a way that I wasn't taking care of me before I was holding Noodle. And that had an impact on me and then it had an impact on everybody else that I was around. And I like to use this, this term called the residue of bother. Because when something bothers you and then that incident is over, it doesn't just shed, you know. In fact, you might have even been able to, to feel this in your life, like walking around, like that thing happened, it's not over, and I've got the residue of bother on me. And the next, you know, three people, five people, ten people that I come across, even if I try to put on the right face, they're somehow or another, maybe deep down in that parasympathetic nervous system, all those little subliminal things that have to do with the tightness of the skin around the eyes, who knows what. They're going to sense that residue of bother on me, and that's going to have an impact on our relationship. And that's, that, that's when I'm trying not to be bothered. That's like when I'm around people that I kind of, you know, like, you know. What if, I'm, what if I'm then bothered again by somebody else? You know? A lot of what this practice does is it helps work with the dissipation or the half-life of bother. How it is digested and dealt with real time. Because we have this thing called the bodhisattva in Buddhism. And the bodhisattva vow isn't that I will practice Buddhism so that Michael can have a fun life and I can feel unbothered. But I will actually practice Buddhism so that I can actually be a gift to the people that I meet, to the world. That I can actually be that person that naturally has spaciousness for other people's let's say, follies, shortcomings, and mistakes. So the people around me don't have to just be perfect. And cultivating this sort of compassion is not easy. Now, sometimes you have things that drop on you that are just, like, amazing, like Noodle. But a lot of life is fairly mundane, where there's just stuff happening, you know? I'm just riding my bike, I'm just riding the bus, I'm just talking to customer service, I'm just whatever, you know? It, I'm just doing the life thing. And it seems fairly mundane. Cultivating compassion and cultivating a sense of connectedness to the... There's a certain power of, of love that is in this universe, but... It's so easy to get separated from it, and even in a Zen center, to be caught up in your spreadsheets to the point that you really aren't connected to that anymore. And the people around you can sense that. 
and finding ways in your life that bring you back to the place that allow you to be connected to the things that let your heart be more open, that let you be more spacious, first with yourself, then with other people, are the things that you're trying to cultivate by having a monastery. Because it can be very hard sometimes in the street. It can be very hard sometimes on the bus or at work. So people thought, why don't we get together and create a place where we can slow stuff down a little bit, and we can create some silent time here and there, and we can give people a space to just look at a wall and actually start to kind of deal with some of this stuff that's a little bit difficult to deal with real time as it's happening all throughout the day. And what we are doing here this evening and what we do in this monastery is we prepare for being a person in the world. Just like you would have a practice place, whether you have a kiln for doing firing pots or you have a place for your violin or you have a place for practicing a sport. You know, this is a practice place. And we call it practice. Practice for what? Practice for life. Because it can be really hard sometimes just to be a human being in the world, in your body, with your mind, doing your stuff. It can be really daunting sometimes. And what if there was a place to go practice and to get ready for that? I mean, if you think, if I think, if anyone thinks working out is hard on a daily basis, trying to cultivate compassion can be really hard in this world sometimes. It takes work. And there's many little things that a person can do, but I usually tell people to start with something where you can connect. When you come back to something that just softens you. You know, human beings were alive for a long time before there was any evidence in archaeology of humans burying other humans. And at some point, we developed outside of just the small brain, outside of just the survival brain, and we developed the ability for externalizing and seeing another human being and having compassion for their pain too. And you start to see evidence of humans burying humans and ritual objects and remembrances and things like that. The big mind. But sometimes we get stuck in small mind. We get stuck in animal mind, survival mind. And it really is just about me and my goals and my stuff. And I don't really feel, I don't really feel what's going on outside me. And it's not something that in the moment oftentimes can be summoned. It's something that has to be cultivated as a capacity. I mean, I've been in many situations in my life where I thought, I should really be a lot more compassionate right now. But it's really hard to just summon in the moment if I haven't actually cultivated it. You know, There's a chant that we have here called the loving-kindness meditation. And um, there was one point in my practice where for a better part of a year, that was just what I meditated on every period of zazen. Because I was really feeling detached and jaded toward even people at Zen Center. And, you know, we have practices of bowing where people humble themselves. And you have practices um, of altars. It's not altars for altar's sake. It's not ritual for ritual's sake. It's that the remembrances, the remembrances of what's up there and the names of the people who died... And, and knowing them 
And knowing what the different things symbolize can help connect and bring you back. There's nothing on this altar that's holy. It was not preordained by a god, and you could rearrange it and it would be okay. But it can take on something very holy for an individual if it's something that brings you back and connects you to your heart and connects you to a purpose for why you do what you do or to a loved one or to an example of a loved one who was very spacious and kind and loving with you. That can be something very powerful to channel. And so one time um, I was having a, uh, a lot of difficulty with another person in the Sangha and they, um, the teacher I was seeing said, why don't you um, put uh, an altar together for this person? And I was like, <laughs> that's all I can do to really be around them. I think that they're evil. <laughs> but to actually create something you know, people have had, uh, you can do an altar in all, all sorts of ways. You can put an object up there that reminds you to not beat yourself up over things. You can put an object there to remind you of a grandparent that exemplified qualities that you want to embody. You know, remembrances. This is what human beings have done. It's like, it, it actually takes work. It actually takes work to tap into and remember to tap into in this busy world the things that make you a more spacious person naturally not forced nice but you just show up and it's that way that it happens you know somebody said one time they're like how do i know what to do like well in the moment you just have to take your best stab at it but you can prepare for life by calming down and creating a sense of centeredness in yourself and you will see more clearly just like when a lake quits having a storm and all of a sudden as the ripples start to go away you start to see this glass image and things get a lot more clear what happened with noodle actually calmed me down my heart i could visually see my heart on a chart calming down and when people get more calm they always get more clear. Even if it's only 5 or 10%, but you get more clear. When you're calm, you get more clear. And when you get more agitated, you get less clear. And what happens when you get more clear about things? You usually get a little less agitated. It just like keeps, you know, it keeps going around in circles. There's a link between the stuff that we're trying to do well, all of the right intentions that we have. In Buddhism, we call it the Eightfold Path, which is the, the path that ends suffering. And so that's what you're studying in the monastery, is this Eightfold Path, these eight different things that help individuals not suffer right view, right thought, right speech, you know, how we speak about people or how we speak to people, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. All of these things that 
we try to do in the monastery and all the practices that are around those things. But what underpins all of them is the context of compassion, is a heart of compassion. You can actually get really good at right mindfulness and and right speech and these different things, right concentration, and be somewhat cold. But when they are fired by and in the context of a compassionate mind, when I say compassionate mind, a mind that is big mind, that is evolved, that can be outside of my primal fear mind and my animal mind, but can be actually putting myself in another person's shoes, another person's suffering, another person's context, another person's hopes, another person's goals. For years, I was a type A person, first in tech and then in banking, who was always thinking about my goals. And it really floored me one time when someone asked me something here after a few years of practice. They said, um, how much am I emotionally invested in the success or failure of other people's goals? And I was like, well, at least 99% of my time is involved with whether or not I'm succeeding or failing with my goals. You know? And sure, I would feel bad for somebody, but I really wasn't that connected to other people's goals and what they were trying to do. What is it in your life that brings you back and melts your heart and lets you connect to the love that's in the universe? Sometimes it's poetry, sometimes it's an animal, sometimes it's an activity, sometimes it's music, sometimes it's dance, sometimes it's the memory of the the mind that someone dealt with us with. I've talked in here before about the two examples that everybody can think of. Everyone can think of a person in your life, sometime in your life, who was critical of you. Where you, where, where, where you couldn't do anything right. Where the box was just really narrow. And it maybe even felt like they had it out for you. And they wanted you to fail. And you know how that impact is on you and your spirit and your creativity and your humor, and your lightness. It just sucks all those things away, and it makes you tight. And you know what it's like if you can think of the person in your life who was the most spacious with you, where you could make mistakes, and you could try new things, and you could try on a different hat, and you could try different things, and it was okay to fail and fall down. And you didn't worry about that at all. It was okay. And you can contrast those two people. And we play those two people to ourselves all the time. And sometimes way more on the tight side. And we also play those people to other people. I have been both of those people to other people before in my life. And this is about learning to cultivate compassion, learning what it is that that connects me. And so when we sit zazen like we were doing at the very beginning, this is where we start in the monastery. You you start with a meditation practice where you're sitting, and the stuff that comes up into your head, it's not always fun. 
Sometimes it's something that somebody else said. Sometimes it's something that I did. Sometimes it's a failing where I wish I was stronger. Sometimes it's a, just an emotion I have. It's just like, wow, I shouldn't want to strangle people. Um, you know, there's, it, it's, you know, stuff comes up, you know, and, and not nice stuff, you know, all sorts of stuff comes up for people. And sometimes we want to pretend like it's nice stuff, but we're, we have all sorts of stuff that comes up. And can I sit there in the middle of my stuff and hold it with the spaciousness of that person that we were just envisioning in our life that was there for us? That person who had that big, broad mind. Can I sit in the morning in my meditation practice with that kind of spaciousness with my stuff? And can I hold it with that kind of openness and with that kind of um, acceptance? Not approval, acceptance. Because that's what came up. And if you're just sitting with what's coming up and you're not summoning things, you're just sitting with, then that's all the, you know, the karma from our past, the neurobiology of our great-grandmother, the thing that happened when we were 10, it's all coming up. And I'm sitting in the middle of that. And I'm learning to be spacious with it and I'm learning to be accepting of it. And sitting right there in the middle of it without judgment and learning to not look away, to not daydream or to add a story to it, but to just be right there with the thing that's coming up. And that is where we start with the compassion practice for ourselves, is with our zazen in the morning. And then anything you can find that you can spend time with that with, that you can spend time with in your life that brings you back, where you can do a check of yourself and if you're an accomplishment-oriented person, to try to find time, once a day at least, where you're not just being efficient. And to spend 10 minutes connecting to maybe a person who was very spacious with you. Or connecting to a small dog. Something that will bring you back to that place and maybe if you start a meditation practice, maybe many of you do have a meditation practice. It's something that you can practice in the morning before you go off to work or school or what have you. Or if you don't have time when you come home. And to sit with that kind of spaciousness for yourself. Because even those activities that we have in the monastery called the Eightfold Path that is supposed to end suffering can be undertaken without compassion, without a softness of heart, and can be done in a way that's very clinical and cold. And then all of a sudden you're missing something. So there's a lot of things that we could be doing this evening. A lot of places we could be helping out, volunteering. There's lots of shelters in San Francisco. There's lots of great nonprofits. There's things you could do. But what you're doing right here is incredibly important because you're going to take your heart and your mind out to the rest of the world when you leave here and that is the gift you're giving the world to that next person you interact with. So our goal at San Francisco Zen Center is not to turn everybody into a Buddhist or a Zen practitioner. Our goal is to have you pay attention to what's going on in your life and to connect to it and to be sincere with it 
and to have the courage to stick with an accepting, compassionate mind. Someone asked the Dalai Lama one time, there's so many good things in Buddhism, shouldn't everybody be a Buddhist? And he said, if someone has found a spiritual path that's worked for, that has worked for them, that's what they should stick with. So I don't know what the goal is for you, but the door is open for Zazen if you ever want to come by. Right out there on Laguna Street, there's a white door. It opens up um, in the mornings for Zazen at um, 5, well, 5.25 to 5.40 it's open, and then it opens again at 6. And then in the evenings it opens up um, 5.25 to 5.40. If you ever want to come and sit with us, just bring your mask and um, the door is open. And if you want to talk to a teacher or you want to talk to somebody here about anything in your life, that's what the teachers are here for. You know, how does Zen principles work with my job, you know, programming computers? How does it work in the marketing department? How does it work with my dance, you know? Um, that's what this temple's here for, is to practice for life. And so um, you can talk to me about that afterward, or you can email me, or you can email any of the folks on the Yuz list. Um, and um, um, we just want to be a resource for the community, for people to come and be in touch with their stuff. So thank you for being here this evening, and um, please take care of yourselves.